Yep. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover of Yours Truly, Jay Mace. And we're going to get us out of the entertainment industry with those in the know and giving them their flowers right here to be celebrated. With me on the line once again, I have my brother from another mother. We've been rocking since our days in the triad area. Go listen to part one of our interview yeah. so that you can yeah. get the backstory. So we're going to hit you with the remix like with Diddy. Take that, take that. It's my man, the one, the only there come for, Mr. B man, B man, welcome back to Beyond the Album Cover, bro. Thank you for having me once again. For real, for real, yeah, I really appreciate that. Nah, no problem, man. Just trying to do my best, Brucey Bree intro. You know, make it sound like I'm rolling down 125th Street on Willie Burgers and all that good stuff, like Mitch, Alpo, and Rico, and uh, Payton Fool. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right, right. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely yeah. got to do that. Yeah, definitely got to do that. But um, we were talking before we started this interview that um, legendary DJ, DJ Spinbad, just passed away at the age of, I believe, 46. So can you talk about his impact on you as a DJ and what he meant as a whole to the DJ community? Absolutely. I mean, DJ Spinbad was one of the first, not to be confused with the Spinbad out of Philly, but Spinbad out of New York City. Spinbad, I mean, if you ever listen to a mixtape, and we, you know, there's a couple of creatives that I think of when it comes to mixtapes, like DJ Juice. And, you know, Spinbad is another one of those cats that creatively, I have never really heard before him. I never heard anything like a mixtape well put together with skits, um, catchphrases, news clips, all that stuff was spin bad. I mean, just a creative soul, man. And seemed like a good, good dude. I never got to meet him, but it's a huge loss for hip hop in the DJ community, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Dan. You mentioned how skits and everything were on point with the mixtapes. This was back in the days where you had to do it on cassette and you didn't really have the technology, so you really had to be on point. And speaking of another pioneer in the mixtape game back during the early 90s, talk about the impact of Ron G. Oh, man, Ron G. You know what's funny, man? So I'm going to get into a story before I get into that. So one of my friends, um, I used to DJ in Greensboro at this club called Lotus, right? So one of my friends used to come there before we were even really cool like that. And he, you know, he, he had a rap career going on. He was like, yeah, this is my joint. I was like, oh, your music's pretty good. And he was like, yeah, man, I try to give them to my dad and, you know, get him to spin it. I'm like, who's your dad? He was like, oh, man, you probably never heard of him. This is dude named Ron G. I'm like, what, Ron, like the Ron G? He's like, yeah. So his dad is actually Ron G. Ron G meant everything to me. It's a couple of key players, man. I got a lot of people that, help create my story. Um, Ron G, when I seen that segment of him on Yo! MTV Raps, they did, I think it was two segments, actually. They went to his, his house when he was standing in the projects and um, he was doing his mixtapes and he had a whole rack with like CD, not CDs, tapes, cassettes, and he had them hooked up to his turntables. And just seeing that, man, as a kid, it blew my mind, man. Like, Ron G, the blint, like, him blending like that was that was a big thing in the early 90s so 
big salute to Ron G. Right. And those mixtapes made their way down south, like as we were talking about in part one, how a lot of people from up north had family down south. And when they came down to visit right. or relocate, those tapes made their way down and it caught the bug in the VA, the Carolinas, so on and so forth. And a lot of local DJs in those areas would add their own spin to it. Right. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those mixtapes were... I mean, everywhere. I mean, if you didn't buy them from the actual, you know, mom and pop stores where they were selling these mixtapes, um, you know, your cousin had it. Or you dubbed the tape and you had it eventually, you know. And a lot of people don't understand, like, when you get copies, there was one master copy. The master copy was the copy that you got from the DJ, which was the clearest one. You were going to pay 20 to 30 bucks for it, maybe even $100, depending on how hot the tape was and then the people that sold at the mom and pop stores actually made copies and then you got the copy of that copy mm -hmm. so or if you were lucky like going down south we have what's called the flea market and you probably could go to the flea market yeah, and maybe catch true. those mixtapes at the flea market that's that's that too absolutely the flea market definitely ran strong in the 90s i would even say all the way up to the early 2000s they're still around too but i don't know if they sell cds and tapes anymore well of course you know they probably sell the knockoff clothing but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day but at the flea markets <laughs> that was where i first heard of you know yin yang twins before they really broke mainstream and then also ludicrous because unbeknownst to most mainstream music listeners ludicrous had an indie album out entitled incognito and then once he got signed to def jam south he just repackaged that album with some new singles and that became back for the first time correct you are so correct with fat rabbit on there all those good singles yeah Mm -hmm. yeah. And I didn't know this, speaking of the Atlanta connection with uh, DJ Nabs, that DJ Nabs was originally mm -hmm. from before he moved down to. Right. You know what was funny? I recently found that out about three years ago. And I can honestly say, like, I'm a huge Nabs fan, crisscross. Like, crisscross meant everything to me. So, you know. I always thought he was from Atlanta because it's been so long since he's been in Atlanta. I never knew he was from Durham. He's from the Bull City. Yeah, I, yeah, never, I never knew that either. Yeah, shout out to DJ Nabs and Chris Cross, that whole movement. I mean, when Jump took off, it was like gangbusters. I mean, they were opening for Michael Jackson on the Dangerous Tour. That's how big they were, and they were in the video for Jam. Michael Jackson. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, MJ, the greatest of all time. Yeah, which was so dope, you know, to see them doing their thing. And then also out of Atlanta, we had another bad creation, which was discovered by Kevin Wells. And also Dallas Austin came out of that whole movement, did Aisha. He was put on by George Spinnerella Irby from Climax, who also discovered Correct. Lloyd and Sammy. Yes. You, you want to know an interesting story? So last time I was in Atlanta, no, I think it was time before last. You know, I always heard about, you know, you would see another bad creation any given place. Like, a lot of people told me this. Um, and we went to this park, and I seen, I think it was Roro from another bad creation. Just randomly. Word? Just walking. I'm like, I'm kind of in shock. Like, 
you know, I really don't get starstruck, but at that point, I was like, oh, snap, that's dude from another bad creation. And nobody knew who it was, like. Man, that's so crazy. And I felt bad for all the girls with Shah at the end of their name, because once Aisha came out, they were getting teased at school. And sorry for my cousin Aisha, because she had to hear that all her life growing up. Aisha and that, that whole nine. ABC yeah. was another big movement. And also we had organized noise, you know, yes. Rico Murray, yes. Ray, yes. Ray, Ray, Ray Sleepy Brown and Outcast. That whole Atlanta movement was just something different. And it was finally a great time in music once everybody outside the South started getting what was being put down in Atlanta. Agreed, agreed. Atlanta has a whole different thing going on with music, man. I, I think they don't get enough recognition for what they did to music. They changed the whole sound of music. And they're still currently running the music market. Like everything. Thing is Atlanta-based. Yes, they South are. Atlanta. Yeah, and I don't know if you heard T.I.'s new CD yet, Libra, Fire. I haven't. It is, it, it is. is, it is Fire. You know, he got tracks from Killer Mike, got Rhapsody on there, got his son Damani on the track. I think Rick Ross is on there. I mean, it's a dope album. That album, along with uh, Jada Kiss, Ignatius album, Locks, We Are the Streets, and then Busta's ELE2 album. Top rap albums for me for the year so far. Wow, you know what's funny? The I have to sit down today to actually listen to albums still, but the Buster album is pretty solid. Pretty solid. Yeah, what really got yeah, me on the Buster joint and everything. Yeah, what really got me on the Buster record was the way that he flipped Poison for Out of My Mind. Oh yeah. The way that he oh, just yeah. I was just like, oh my god, and I was like, I'm gonna talk to you, and I'm like, man, I know at the next party you could be cutting. His joint up, going into Poison, and Poison is still a great record, still getting the folks moving and grooving 30 years later. And I just did an interview recently with Richard Wolf, a.k.a. Wolf from Whoop It Epic, and he was giving me a whole lot of backstory about BBD and how it was pretty much where they just wanted to establish their own selves outside of New Edition because we know New Edition as our generation's temptations with the choreography and the presentation. But BBD was straight hip hop. Like, as they say, hip hop smoothed out on the R&B tip with a pop filler pill to it. And then we take a look at TLC. When they came out, their whole looking aesthetic was pretty much BBD. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I never really thought about that. You you are so correct on that because they had the baggy, oversized clothes, loud colors. Yeah. You, yeah. You're 100% correct on that. I never thought about that. Yeah. But in same setup, too, you got your two singers, T-Boz, Chili, your rapper, Left Eye, like BBD. Of course, Ricky was the primary singer, BBD. Then you got Ron and Mike on the raps. So it was just beautiful to see that whole thing come in and explode them. We gotta also give props to LA and Babyface for setting up shop in Atlanta for LaFace. And then also Bobby Brown had the foresight to say, I'm gonna move to Atlanta because something's happening, something's going on. They already had SOS band out of Atlanta, but that was more funk RB. But Bobby, when he set up shop in Atlanta, had Boss Town Studios, which later became Stankonia Studios. Stankonia yep. Outcast. They just had the foresight that something is in the red clay. 
down in Georgia. Right. And as we said now, Atlanta is still on top of it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And then, you know what's funny? I never found that out until a couple of years ago that Stankonia was formerly Town, which is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Pretty yeah. cool to think about. Yeah, because I remember watching the Art of Organized Noise documentary, and they were talking about some of the guys from Organized Noise were explaining how they would just sit outside of the parking lot, not able to record, but just saying, man, one day we're going to be able to record in that studio. And sure enough, like I said, everything just blew up, came out of fruition. Now, why is it that you think nationwide people didn't catch on to TI until the second album? When I'm Serious came out, it was only a Southern regional successful album, but not that mainstream breakout that he didn't get until second album was, was that Urban Legend or Trap Music, TI's sophomore album? Um, The second album, so the first album was I'm Serious. I'm serious. The second one was trap music and then urban legend, Ur trap music, legend, then urban if, legend. I'm, if i'm not mistaken yep mm. yes all right so the reason i think that people didn't catch on the ti because hip-hop was still in that um sort of hard phase like you had your outcast you had your goody mob but it was slowly transitioning over to the south i mean at that time it was more about bounce like if you was from the south you had to like be doing a big head bounce um, or it had to be almost crunk music. You know, you got to think about it. What did you have? Like Miracle. You had, uh, what's his name? Drama, Left, Right, Left. You had that going on a whole bunch of club crunk music. And even if you were from the South, like you had 3-6 Mafia. T.I. was not, like he was in the middle. Like he was Southern, but he had lyrics. So if you go back and listen to I'm Serious, he wasn't on a lot of South Beats. Like, he had South Beats, but he was over Neptune's productions. So it didn't transpire with Up North because you couldn't identify, like, hey, this is a true Southern artist. You may have listened to his vocals and said that, but his singles that they picked, it didn't, it didn't really make sense. Like, I liked them, but they didn't go over And I think when he did trap music, I think that's when 24s came out and that was kind of like in the realm of the south what was going on little john they had an 808 so it's like oh this is dope he's talking about south south things 24s on cards the north wasn't doing that so that's when people started paying attention to him and he crossed mm -hmm. over yeah, and speaking of the South, a little bit further south down in Louisiana with New Orleans, you had, of course, the No Limit movement. And as we saw in the No Limit Chronicles, how Master P was able to infiltrate yep. the industry and bring that New Orleans style hip hop to the mainstream. And when C Murder came out with Down for My, every band, if you're HBCU or PWI, is playing that. And I'm looking, I'm like, what does University of Alabama know about down for my you-know-whats? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. That, that record still rings off to this day. Yep, that is a fight yeah. record along with uh, Ted a Club Up by 3-6 Mafia. And when I went to Memphis last year and we passed by the arcade restaurant, I was like, you know, that is where 3-6 Mafia shot the Ted a Club Up video at. And I think Memphis wow. as a whole, rap wise, doesn't get enough respect, you know, with three six, DJ Spanish Fly, and eight ball and MJG. I agree. 
I agree. Memphis is definitely important to hip hop. Just like we got Louisiana, like you were saying, same thing. It's a whole different sound. Texas. I mean, it's so many places where hip hop is, is different, man. Like, yeah, you're right. Mm, and then in the Midwest, of course, you get all the MCs out of Chicago. You had Do or Die, Twister, Bingo. Common, Crucial Conflict, which I found. Crucial Conflict. Yes, sir. I found a video. It was like a couple months back. It was of a high school band and they were playing Hey. And I was like, what do they know about Hey? They're not talking about Hey in the middle of the barn. They were talking about that other Hey. If you catch my drift, yeah, so can yeah, you tell yeah, about yeah, the impact yeah. of crucial conflict and why is it that you think nobody really took on to them with them coming out of the Midwest and Chicago, especially? Honestly, with crucial conflict, um, that record was huge, man. I think I was like seven years old when that record came out. Um, I think, and this is just my personal opinion, I think with crucial conflict, their second single didn't match the success or the vibe that they presented themselves as. So when that happened, mm. it was just kind of like, hey, you know, all right. <laughs> you but, know what I mean? Yeah. It was it was just out of the door because Hey was such an energetic single and, you know, they just didn't have that single to match that one. Right. I think their second single was Ride the Rodeo, I believe. And it was like moderate success, but it didn't really have that same mainstream success as Hey. Now, I recently did an interview with uh, the rap group The Org out of Jersey. And we were talking about rap artists that we thought would be all right when they first came out, but we didn't expect to really blow huge. And I said, my artist like that for me was Nelly. Because I thought Nelly would be like a one, two hit wonder, you know, with Country Grandma and E.I. But once Ride With Me, Dilemma, and everything else came after that, I was like, okay, Nelly is really doing something. Because I was just like simple nursery rhymes. And I just thought that, you know, St. Louis, Missouri. Right. Yeah, so what? Yeah, I can hear you good. So what's your take on, okay. you know, Nelly and him being able to have that meshing of hip hop and pop to where he's accepted in both worlds? And then, of course, sampling Chuck Brown for Hot in Here. Man, Nelly, when he came out, I mean, I was in middle school. No, no, no. I was going to middle school. I was in sixth grade. So that whole country grammar, matter of fact, I got the t- tape over there the actual cassette um that album i thought nelly was dope man i thought he was dope because he was it was like he was the star and then he was bringing this whole crew and he definitely represented exactly where he was from he wasn't ashamed to be from the south because like i said at the time everything was so new york driven you got to be from new york to be a rapper and you know, he brought the band-aids on his eyes, you know what I mean? Like the cuts in his eyebrows. Everything about him was so original. I we, I don't think I had ever seen anything like that before. And then when he broke off and did the St. Lunatics with the Midwest swing and all that good stuff, I mean, I was sold. I, I thought Nelly was dope. I mean, it was different. Yeah, it was, it was definitely different. different, definitely fresh. And ladies were buying apple bottom jeans by the boatload and some dudes. You probably got your vocal sweatsuit still in the closet catching mothballs. 
Oh yeah, and then and then you said uh, about the uh, the Apple whole bombs. Chuck Brown thing. Chuck Brown, yeah, him, yeah, yeah. him, him, him sampling Chuck Brown was just genius. I mean, Pharrell was on fire at the time. When I say Pharrell, I mean the Neptunes guys. I always fuss at people for saying that the Neptunes were on fire. Um, I just thought that record. I mean, that was a big record. Like at that time, man, hot in here. You know what's funny? Every time I go to DJ at Greensboro, shout out to Triad Old School, there's a guy who requests hot in here every single time I DJ. Every single time. I never play that record, but he requests it every time. So that just tells you that record is timeless. Man, without, timeless. without fail. And uh, did you happen to catch the Rough Rider Chronicles on BT? It was right after the No Limit Chronicles. Yes. I did not know yes, I until did. I saw that that Swiss Beats was why is Y and Dean's nephew. I didn't know that. Correct. Correct. And winding yeah. those you don't know, co-founders of Rough Riders, and it was just amazing to see how Swiss was down in Atlanta. I believe he was going to school at the time and was soaking up all of this musical influences. So by the time when his uncles called him up to have him get down with Rough Riders, he was ready to go. And Swiss beats, he's one of those producers. For me, it's him, Timberland, and the Neptunes, where they make you do that scrunched up like. Mm. Man, you hear that beat? Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. I all well being from Virginia, I always say Tim and Neptunes for sure. And Swiss. I, I you, you here's an interesting thing I was just thinking about the other day. When we name our top producers for the longest, those names come up. It's Tim, the Neptunes, Swiss, Dr. Dre, Just Blaze. Do you think those names will ever change? Like, you know what I mean? Like, back in the 90s, there were different producers that they named. I think that's the default list that people think about. Like, they don't even think about the new cats. It's always Tim, the Neptunes, Dre. Just Blaze, Dre, and Swiss. And then whoever falls in line after that. Do you think that list will ever change? Um, for me, I think it depends on your age bracket. Like with us, we came along in that era. So of course, we're going to have all those guys named. But with the younger generation, right. it's more so come and go. And I don't know if we're going to have that steady producer where they're cranking out hits for 10, 20, 30 years. And then I will also add to that list for me personally, Teddy Riley. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. You know what? Teddy doesn't get enough respect, man. Like, he does, but he doesn't. Like, that name should definitely be in that room. Like, you got to mention Teddy. Teddy created a whole genre of music. I don't think people understand that. Yeah, because Teddy, before Teddy. Teddy came into the game, it was where R&B and hip-hop was on two separate sides of the room, didn't meet in the middle. But once he came out, and his work with Key Sweat and Guy. And they also got to give credit for Force Lake, the groundwork for what was to come with Teddy. But Teddy, he just added, I'm going to add a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. See what I did there? And then also yeah. made that meshing of New Jack Swing and is still loved and revered to this day. I mean, if you listen to Bruno's 24 Karat Magic album, it's a complete New Jack Swing album. Correct. Correct. Yeah, Teddy picked up. I was Teddy picked up right off with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. 
left because that's who he said he modeled his sound after. Ted, uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis and L.A. and Babyface. Mm, yeah, definitely the Trinity, you know, with Teddy, Jam and Lewis, L.A. and Face. They pretty much had a monopoly on R&B and pop radio back in yes. the late 80s and early 90s. And then to see how, you know, the Neptunes came along and then Devontae, Devontae Swain from Jodeci. His oh, production man, work, his one. songwriting, incredible. But to me, what was more incredible about Devontae was how he had an eye for talent, where he was able to spot out Timbaland, Misty, Tweet, you know, play a rest in peace, Static Major, Genuine, and all those acts that came to be the basement. Bingo, bingo. Yeah, a lot of people don't... I'm a huge Devontae Sweeney fan, man. A lot of people... He's another one, man, like... I wish he would make new music and he would show his face more. But Devontae, I mean, bro, the sounds that he was creating at that time, I'm really into sound design and claps and snares. At that time, you it wasn't like today where you can download a sound kit and put the drums in and you make your beats or whatever. It was literally you had to sample those drums in or create them. So for him to do that, in 91 to about 96, 90, yeah, 96. Incredible. If you go back and listen to that production and you listen to, like you said, the people he scouted, Tweet, Timbaland, Missy, uh, uh, Player, Genuine. Like, man, he was ahead of his time. Yeah, ahead definitely of ahead of the curve. And then I was listening a couple of months back to when Quest Love was doing, a, I believe it was a Andre Harrell tribute set. And he was saying yeah. how Biggie had a Uptown version of Ready to Die. But once Diddy got fired from Uptown and started Bad Boy, he started Ready to Die from scratch. And Big Ups, Biggie is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Ready to Die one of the best rap albums of all time is on pretty much every major music publications, 500 greatest albums. So can you tell about the impact of Biggie and how you felt his career would have been progressed had his career not been so tragically cut short? Of course. So Ready to Die, that was one of the first hip hop albums that I seen with parental advisory, a huge, at the time, Back in, the, back in the day, they used to actually put a sticker on it. Now it's more so in the artwork on the CD. If you still buy CDs, it's actually printed on. So it's not separate. Back in the day, it was like a big sticker. It could be about this big, right? Mm. For rental advisory. So I remember my cousin, my cousin Devin Foster had Ready to Die. And I remember turning that album on. I, you know, at that time, I know me personally, I couldn't listen to you know, explicit lyrics. I had that joint all the way down with my <laughs> ear like this. <laughs> and man, I just remember the beats were so like in your face, the kicks, the snares. And I just remember his voice being so, so loud and it pierced through the speaker. And I was, I was like, man, this guy, I already knew of Juicy, but I didn't know of anything else. And I didn't, that's when I put two and two together that this was the guy on Mary J. Blige's Real Love remix. So I'm like, oh, this is the same guy. Now it makes sense. And I mean, at that time, man, that CD was gold. Like from 
the inside of the packaging with the big baby face on it, the bad boy logo. Everything that they did at that moment was genius. And I feel like Big is one of those artists. We got to think, Big literally only made two studio albums. Am I, am I right? Two studio albums. It's ready yeah, to cause die. Because I, I think Life, Life After, After Death, Death was done right before he had uh, tragically right passed. before he died. Yep. And this guy made that much of an impact. You got to think, like, Big changed the way people were rapping. It's it's only a couple of people that did that, like Rakim. Rakim changed the way people were rapping. Big Daddy Kane changed the way people were rapping, too. Like, it went from Grandmaster Flash wearing all these, you know, leather jackets dressing like rock stars to them wearing gold chains and being cool. Then Big switched it up. To where people were wearing, you know, high top fade still. To oh, I'm gonna wear Tim's. I'm gonna wear Kango. I'm gonna wear a polo, and my my delivery of my music is gonna be different. Like I'm gonna try to fit as many words into a sentence as I can and tell a story. So Big is he definitely deserves it, man. Yeah, definitely, it. Def- definitely that. And like I said, it's just a shame that we really didn't get to see how his career would have progressed had. He not been tragically killed. And then same thing goes with Tupac. Tupac, they said from all accounts, he was the studio junkie, always recording, yeah. always had things going, you know. And same yeah. thing with him. It's just a shame that we couldn't really see the evolution of him as a rapper, as an actor, as a person, had he not been killed in Vegas. I think if Big was still alive, man, he would actually. I don't think he would be making music anymore. I think it would be more so he's touring and living in his legacy versus trying to continue to be hip and trying to make music because Big was a smart dude. Like if you go back, he was he was such a business guy and just savvy. It wasn't like him trying to fit in. He was his own person. So I don't I honestly don't think him nor Tupac would be making music at this age. Right. It would just be like, hey, if I perform, I'm going to perform my old hits. And that's kind of it. Right. So talk about this run by this collection was so underrated. It gets overlooked a whole lot. And I'm talking about Dipset, Diplomats, Cam, oh, Wells, Jim Jones, Freaky Zeke, Hell Rail, Max B. So talk about that, that run of Dipset and Camera and Come Home With Me where everybody was rocking pink and you know, to Chucks and all of that stuff. And Cam, look at that video that he just did recently, freestyling. Killer Cam still got it. Man, listen, Cam, the whole dip set meant everything to my 2002 to probably, I would say 2006. I mean, at that time, man, dip set, it was, it was either you were a dip set fan or you were a D block fan. I happen to be a fan of both, but I favored more of the Dipset. Um, I mean, those mixtapes that came out with K Slay, I had all of them. Diplomatic I Community. Every yes, I had the I had the albums, I had the mixtapes, I had everything, bro. So actually, me and my friend Pat Terry, I mean, we were huge. Like to this day, if I get in my car right now, I'll play "Come Home with Me." I'll play Purple Haze. Like, those are, like, some of my favorite hip-hop albums of all time because 
the beats were different. Like they came with a whole new sound for New York. And if you ask me, they were an early version of the ASAP mob. Like ASAP mob basically copied Wu Tang and and uh, Dipset and made a whole new style. They're just a newer version of them. But I mean, you had you know you had Duels, you had Hellrell, you had uh, uh, Max, Max B. B. You had Cam, you had Jim Jones, uh, Freaky Ziki. Shout out to Freaky. Um, but you had all these guys, man, and the albums, the production, it really didn't even matter to me what they were saying. It was the beats, the heat makers. Oh my God, the heat makers was the Swiss of Rough Riders to them. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he made a whole sound for each of those people's albums. Like, you had to have the heat makers for Dipset. Mm, yeah, because that I'm Ready beat, Yo Gotti even had yeah, to yeah, acknowledge yeah, yeah. how hot that I'm Ready beat was. He flipped it, sampled it. But when I first heard I'm Ready, I was like, hmm, yeah. what is this? And then you mentioned Rough Riders again. We got to mention uh, PK and also Dame Grease, who was also in-house yeah. producers for Rough Riders as well. Crafted Sounds for DMX and everybody under that camp. I mean, Rough Riders, they were able to successfully blend street with pop because when you look at DMX and listen to his material, you wouldn't think pop star. You would think his right. music is just for street dudes. Right. Right. Nah, you're right about that. hundred percent. Cause you know what they did at the time? It was, it was samples. Hip hop was so gritty. Everybody wanted to sample and make it sound so East coast and would, the Rough Riders did. They were from New York still, but they were like, all right, we're going to get... They At the time, they had Dame Grease, and he was kind of like the New York guy. And like you watch the documentary, what they did was they got Swiss. Swiss was like, all right, I'm going to take these keyboards and make original melodies. It's still going to be hard, but it's going to be different. And that's what changed the sound, man. Mm -hmm. Swiss making beats on keyboards versus sampling. Yeah, man. And um, another documentary that is on YouTube that if you're a music lover, especially of 90s hip hop, you should check out called uh, Till Infinity. It's about the souls of mischief and their whole impact on hip hop, you know, with them and the hieroglyphics movement with uh, Dale the Funky Homo Sapien and everybody out of that camp. Just talk about the impact of souls of mischief, hieroglyphics, and everything hip hop wise that was coming out of the bay, like with. E40 and too short. Oh, yeah. So at that time, man, honestly, I was four years old. What Those albums came out in like 93. 93. So I was about seven going on eight when those records dropped because I'm okay. a few years ahead of you. So honestly, man, I'm going to keep it real. I'm going to keep it 100. Um, so is a mischief, Chief. The only record I know and I'll probably get like laughed at. It's this is how we chill from '93 to. And that's and that's the that's the cl classic record that everybody knows them for. But they had <laughs> records upon records. You know, they they were considered like the West Coast version of Tribe. And Tribe, their whole impact. I mean, we could just go from Native Tongues to you know leaders of the New School because you know Buster was on the Scenario Remix. And how Tribe pretty much set the blueprint for what was the later come out of North Carolina with Little Brother. 
Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You're right about that. Yeah, I apologize for that because I that's the only record I honestly know. Yeah, but but <laughs> once again, I say it's like you know what you know. And then also yeah. too, around this same time out west, you know, we had Death Row. And then of course when Warren G came out with Regulate the G Funk era, I found it odd that he was signed to Def Jam since you know Def Jam is based out of New York and Death Row was popping. And of course, Dr. Dre's stepbrother and how, you know, you're not riding with Death Row and you got signed to Def Jam and that album did numbers for Def Jam, especially once Regulate got out onto mainstream radio and it was featured on the Above the Rim soundtrack. Yeah, yeah, you're right about that too. From my understanding, if I was, if I, if my memory serves me correct, I listened to a podcast and I think Warren G said that him and Suge didn't really see eye to eye. And that's why that whole G-Funk era album came out on Def Jam originally. Um, I think, like you said, the regulate, the single was on the Above the Rim soundtrack, but the album came out on Def Jam. I, I don't think he initially signed him to, to Death Row. I don't know how that works, but... Yeah, I thought it was weird too. I remember when that album came out and I seen Def Jam. I'm like, Def Jam, isn't it? Don't they mean Death Row? But, but who yeah. knows? But speaking of Def Jam, they put out one of the best hip hop soundtrack albums of the 90s, and that is The Show. Now, because of that soundtrack, when I listened to Ready to Die and they had me and my you know what on it, I was just like, this is not the yeah. version that I know because I only heard the show version, <laughs> which is the definitive version. And I always crack up whenever they will say, oh, the ladies with the rear hair. I'm like, I could just picture Diddy Diddy bopping on stage and doing his ad libs, doing, doing that whole part. Right. But the show, that soundtrack, classic, you know, Isaac the Isaac, old school Absolutely. and you know, Dove Shack summertime in the LBC. And it just felt like at that time period, West Coast was so strong that New York radio that was once resistant to playing West Coast records had to acknowledge that, okay, the West is running it and we got to pretty much play Dre, Snoop and pretty much anything that was coming out of Cali. Right. Yeah, absolutely. The show soundtrack was another record that I remember coming out and I mean, it was a compilation with a whole bunch of rappers on it. And I remember, you know what's funny? I never seen the show, the actual movie, until about four years ago. A lot of the hip-hop movies, man, because my parents had it on a lot. Like, I couldn't watch anything R-rated. I couldn't listen to anything explicit. So I had to have a clean version. And you know movies, they didn't have clean versions. So it was either you get the rated R or you didn't watch the movie. Or if you no, did you watch, they would tell you to close your eyes while certain parts would come <laughs> on. Right. And I just remember this soundtrack, um, it being a blue cover, and it didn't have any rappers on it. But I remember looking at the back, and I'm like, wow, it has Mary J on it. It has Bone Thugs, Dr. Dre, LL Cool J, Russell Simmons, A Tribe Called Quest, Slick Rick. And so many other things. And there were some great records on there. I remember the first, the thing that stands out to me the most about that soundtrack was the Every Day of Rings record by Mary J. Blige. And that's that's like one of my favorite Mary J. Blige records. 
So that record being on there was was dope. Right. And speaking dope, of man. Mary J, when what's the 411 drop, that was like a meshing of what we later know to come as hip hop soul. And once again, Diddy had the foresight to say, hey, let's take these hip hop beats, put it over RB vocals, and let's mesh the two. Then also we had production on that album by Corey Rooney and Prince Marky D. You know, yeah, a lot of people sleep on Prince Marky D and his production. I mean, his production on his solo album and other work. Hold up, hold up. Let's let's talk about a record that I love, which is one of my favorite hip hop records. But I I bet not too many people would know this record. It's called Typical Reasons by Prince Marky D. Have you ever heard that record? I know that record. Are you talking about the original record or the remix version where they sample Outstanding? Uh, no, I like the original. The, oh, with the sax and with Corey Rooney singing on yes. the hook? Yeah. Yes. Yo, that whole Prince Marketing and the Soul Convention album, free, fire. If yes. you got it, consider yourself a lucky winner because it's out of print. But Prince Marky D, I think people don't give him enough credit for his production work because everybody still sees him as Prince Marky D from the Fat Boys. Yep. Yeah, real love is Prince Marky D and Corey Rooney. So, and they yeah, sample the Audio Two top billing, and they sample Bingo. top billing by Audio Two, which is, is still a classic record. And you know, with hip hop, regionalism was very big in the eighties and nineties, where Philly hip hop was different from New York hip hop, Southern hip hop was different from West Coast hip hop, and the impact of Luke Records and Slip and Slide. Right. It pretty much right. took what was going on in Miami, exploded it nationwide. And we know Pitbull, Trick Daddy, Trina, Rick Ross, everything that was to come out of Miami was set the stage for still what's out now. And then, of course, the success of DJ Khaled. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Miami at that time, I mean, you had, what was it? What was Luke Skywalker's record label called? It was um, it was Luke Records. Luke Records. So you had a lot of bass records to come out on that record label. And then you had uh, was it was it Poison Clan? No, what, what was the guys that made? Oh, Home Team that made the record. Pick it up. Do you remember that song? Like oh, it pick, was it, it up, pick, uh, it up, pick it up. Pick pick it up, pick it up. Yeah, that record. Nah, Not nah. That it's, record. A, it's another one. It's called. It's by Home Team. Pick it up. Pick it up. That was it was like an East Coast record, but these guys were from um Miami and they came out on Luke Skywalker record label. That was like a big hip hop record, and then it switched over from that era to you know slip and slide records with Trick Daddy and your Trinas, and then later on Rick Ross. So Miami is another area that gets overlooked, like they were a big part of hip hop. Mm-hmm, definitely that and also came out of loop records we had h-town you know with knocking the boot h-town but yes but my favorite record off the people for the flavor album was keeping my composure wow yo you know what's funny i never ever listened to a whole h-town album but they had jams man dino the lead singer vocally was cold Bro, vocally was, no was cold like nobody was messing with Dino, bro. Like Dino was nasty. No, yeah, I, my joke. favorite, my favorite Ace Town record would probably have to be 
part-time lover with Devontae Swingo production. Oh my God, that record is so, so cold, yo. Right, and so I know cold. a lot of people may bag me for this, but uh, with as far as Usher goes, with Usher coming out of Atlanta and everything, my favorite Usher album was his debut album that came out in 94. Call me, is it called? What is that album called? With Think of You on it, right? Yeah, yeah. It no, was no, no. just it was just self-titled Usher. The one where he got the curly. Yeah, with the with the curl had Think of You and <laughs> yeah. Can You Get With It, which was another Devontae yeah. production. Devontae Swing. Uh, yep. The Many Ways. And call that me album. No, call, well, Call, call Me a Mac. Mac that was that stuff. wasn't on the album. That was on the Poetic that was Justice on the soundtrack. soundtrack. Right. Yeah, that was Poetic right. Justice. But Usher, you know, to see where his career is evolved from you know being a little kid in 94 and now loved and revered and once confessions broke it was like okay he finally has that michael jackson thriller album because 8701 was the precursor and then confessions just put usher over the top over the top yeah man you you know what i always tell people when they ask me my favorite usher record is two I would say either Lovers and Friends, that's that's like no matter where I hear it, when I hear it, it still rings all the same. Or Think of You. Think of You is like, yo, that record is so jamming, man. So jamming. Like Usher, I think Usher was huge from 97 and then all the way up to Confessions. Like you got to think like My Way, when My Way came out, Usher that was, was the like, beginning of the pop trajectory. Yeah. The 8701, it was kind of like he went down because he got a little older, but it was still like, oh, this is dope because you had you remind me, you don't have to call. Um, I don't know, all those records on there. Mm-hmm. And when confessions hit, that was a whole nother game. Now right around when 8701. He was originally recording a record called It's All About You because you remember Poppy Collin had came out and what happened was songs from that album got leaked out and once that happened, yep. they scrapped the whole thing and then that's how we came up with 8701. You remember, because they had Usher wearing like head wraps. He They had them dressed super weird. I'm actually glad they scrapped that album because... Honestly, I didn't like. Yeah, Poppy I didn't really care for Pop for Poppy Collar, but I remember it getting play on radio and everything. And then, like yep, I stated, because I of LimeWire, Kazaa, Bear Morpheus, and all your P 2 P sites, if you know, you know, that calls them to say, <laughs> "Hey, we're gonna scrap this whole thing because ain't nobody gonna pay twenty dollars for this CD if these four or five songs got leaked out." And you mentioned Lovers and Friends. Lovers and right. Friends was originally a ballad done by. Michael Sterling, Michael, Michael yeah, Sterling. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he was in Inner Circle and he put out a record in 1990, an album called Trouble. And that record was on there. And I had never heard of the record, the original record until let's say a couple of years ago, because this was right around the time when you were only big in your region, you know, like let's say South Florida, because since Michael Sterling was from Miami, that those records probably didn't get a lot of airplay outside of South Florida, maybe North Florida, if you were lucky, but I don't know if it made its way past Florida, you know, with that record. Right. So it was a big plus when Lovers and Friends got sampled by Little John, and then it became a big mainstream hit. And then the secret sauce for Usher, for me, is Mr. So-So Deaf himself, 
JD. JD yeah. is songwriter and production from Usher to Bow Wow, Jagged Edge, Mariah. Y- y'all need to put some escape. Y'all need to put some respect on JD's name. You know what's funny? I I definitely say that. I definitely agree with you. JD's strong point for me was not even just his production. It was his songwriting. His songwriting is so cold, man. There's so many records that he's wrote or written that people, they don't understand, man. Like, JD is a genius. And I, I actually had the pleasure, my cousin took me to his studio. So I actually got to meet JD, seeing how he worked, seeing a crisscross, all the plaques on the wall. So JD is, he's another one, man. Like, a lot of people talk about music and R&B and hip-hop. JD needs to be mentioned every yep. time. Yep, and then we got to talk about Dallas Austin with him coming from Atlanta. I mean, Another his one. work with TLC, but to me, his yep. masterpiece was his work on Coolio Harmony for Boys to Men, which I felt is Boys to Men's best album. Okay, okay. Yeah, Dallas Austin is another one. I mean, so many acts that he brought to the table or had a hand in. You got Boys to Men, you got ABC, you got. I, if I'm not mistaken, no, did he? No, nah. you got TLC, um, Monica, Monica, the whole dark movement, the whole rowdy movement. Like Dallas Austin is definitely somebody, another key player in our culture. Dallas Austin was ahead of his time, right? Definitely ahead of the curve. And then when Little John and T Pain did their versus battle, I did not know that Little John produced Capleton's tour. tour. I've been trying to find that record for years and when they played that, I was like, hold on, did he do this? But what really broke the internet was when Little John played this unreleased track that was done by Usher and I believe it was Bobby Ross Avila on the keys. And he's another one that's underrated that doesn't get enough props bobby ross avila okay. his songwriting his production okay. him and his brother is the avila brothers and he was an artist you know at one point in time before he transitioned to being behind the scenes but just talk about little john and his impact not because of his catchphrases but his production and how he was able to take a regional sound and make it worldwide the way anytime be a beer comes on Somebody is going to throw a random chair, a fight going to break out, and if you're a DJ and you can say, hey, 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 go into Jay-Z 22-2's that outro speech. Yeah, man. Little John, let me let me talk about Little John. Little John has been a part of hip-hop history for a long time. I mean, you got to think, those early bass records that came out, we were just talking about JD, on the So-So Deaf bass movement, which had My Boo and then I Know Jay, all those records, Little John produced them. So he was doing bass records, as we know, as booty-shaking music now. Like, I guess that they still call it that. Um, and then it went to Capleton Tour. Actually, <coughs> excuse me, Capleton Tour came out, I want to say, 95. So he had to be doing Capleton Tour first. Then he went to the bass music there you know, all the bass music. Then it became crunk records. It became, from what I was listening to him on the podcast, he said he wanted to do call and response records. So the first record that they did as Little John and the Eastside Boys was Who You With. Who You With 
caught on on the radio station. So he was like, man, we got to keep doing records like this. The reason, And that's the reason why we got, you know, your crunk records, where he's basically saying the same thing the whole time. And then, you know, Chance, that was because of Who You With, which a lot of people don't know that record. That record is dope. I love Who You With. Yeah, Who You um, With was one of the first records in the southern region, primarily Atlanta and around that area, that really blasted off Little John. And speaking of Atlanta, we got to talk about 112. They were named after Club mm-hmm. 112. And then with the debut album, originally Tim and Bob had songs for Boys and Men's 2 album, but Gerald Busby told them that he wanted more established producers on Boys and Men's follow-up. So those records ended up going to 112 for their debut album. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, man, because if you listen to it, it straight up sounds boys and men. But 112, along with Jagged Edge, two groups in the 90s, R&B-wise, that were so dope. And 112 just added to the whole bad boy dominance at the time, you know, right. with Biggie, Total, Craig Mack, pretty much anything that came out of bad boy was solid. And I didn't know this about the locks until I saw the Rough Riders doc, that they were with Rough Riders the whole time, but it was while they didn't want to play the waiting game, Diddy wanted to sign them to Bad Boy, but they, while they signed the Bad Boy, Rough Riders was still with them as management. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I always thought that was weird, too, that whole situation. Um, just looking back on it, like looking at it at the time, because I think they had the, they went from Bad Boys from the Benjamins to We Are the, I think the album was called We Are the Streets with Wild Out on it. Uh, and I was like, wait a minute, are they with Bad Boys still? Are they are they with Rough Riders? It was kind of like a a gray area with the uh the locks. Right. So and then they go ahead. I'm sorry. Right, but I felt, you know, the whole aesthetic with the locks, it didn't fit what was going on with Bad Boy because Bad Boy was all champagne pop because, you know, Diddy came under, may he rest in peace, Andre Harrell in Uptown. Right. So follow that whole philosophy of popping bottles, aspirational, while the locks is just straight street. Right. Absolutely. They definitely didn't fit what was going on. I mean, they made some great records over there. The Money, Power, Respect album is a classic. Um, but yeah, they fit more with the Rough Riders. Sure. Mm-hmm. Rough Riders indeed and then you know No Limit I didn't realize until the documentary when they were talking about Romeo Romeo was pushing almost about the same numbers if not more than Bow Wow and they I were both out right around the same time I didn't realize that either because I always thought I mean at the time I was 13 12 years old so we always looked at Little Bow Wow Little Bow Wow was the guy and then it was like this guy copying, you know what I mean? Like, this guy ain't it. Um, I, we personally didn't care for Little Romeo. So looking at that documentary, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know he was pushing up those numbers. Right. And also this documentary to me showed how much Beats by the Pound meant to No Limit. And they need to get their flowers right now. Beats by the pound. Yeah. The way that No Limit was cranking out albums back during that peak and the way that they were, they were doing the productions, it was like, man, Beats by the Pound was something serious. Absolutely. Beats by the Pound, you got to look at it. When No Limit first came out with I'm About It, all that down for my, all that stuff is Beats by the Pound. And then all of a sudden, 
when they switched, when they left, like on the documentary you've seen, you could tell a change in the music. Like um, Master P had a record called Ooh Wee. It was like, this don't even sound like Master P. Like he's making twerk music now. So Beats by the Pound, oh my God, their drums just, they sounded different. Their whole sound was no limit. Like they were no limit. Mm. Just like Swiss was the Rough Riders. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about Cruz earlier. You were talking. We were talking about Dipset, and you were talking about D Block. But one crew out of the Rock that was so underrated, don't get enough credit. You know where I'm going. The City of Brotherly Love, State Property, State property. Beans, Freeway, Oskino Sparks, Petey Crack. Talk about that whole movement with State Property. Oh man, State Property. Once again, I mean they had that. Wait, they had that soundtrack, right? That was paid in full on one one CD, and then on the other, it was like a Rockefeller compilation album, but it was mostly state property. Um, I mean, Beanie Siegel, The Reason, classic album, definitely. Uh, Freeway, Philadelphia uh, Freeway, classic album. You know what I mean? And a lot of people, a lot of the rest of them didn't get to fortunately release a commercial release like O'Million Sparks and um, PD. I, I don't know if PD Crack released the album, but I just know it was mainly Beans and and Freeway. Freeway. Who yeah. actually got this shine. Yeah, because wasn't um, Memphis Bleak affiliated with State Property or or he, he wasn't affiliated with uh, State Property? Memphis I don't Bleak. think initial, initially he was in a group. I just know he was on Rockefeller. But it was it was Beans, Freeway, a million sparks, um, PD Crack, uh, the Young Guns. If I'm not mistaken, they were in State Property. I think that's yeah, that yeah, was the group. Yeah, Young Guns was on State Property, and um, these guys weren't State Property affiliated. But I believe they were from Philly. Uh, I can't recall their right name. They had this record called with. Cross the border, and then they had uh please don't mind. most wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought thought that that they were they were dope, and then of course also at this time too, gritty New York hip hop. You know, MOP with Annie up. I mean, now you got Ellen and Anna Kendrick from Pitch Perfect wanting to rock a Yankee fitted, some Tims, and snatch some old Becky for her pearls. Like, come up yeah. off those. Yeah, yeah. That whole early two thousand two. To about 2004, 2005, hip hop with Philly and New York. Man, it was just, it was different, bro. You had to be there to, I mean, I could talk about it. I could tell you about wearing a baggy clothes, a do rag under a fitted hat, a new era <laughs> fitted hat. You remember those? Ooh, and a throwback oh warm up jersey. And a throwback warm up jersey or throwback. Then you had the NBA patch uh, jeans, jeans the NBA. And, the, and the satin jackets. What? <laughs> Looking like a B2K member. <laughs> Bro, man, listen. You either had uh, Air Force Ones or you had some Tims on. Either one. Mm. Yeah, that was the dress code. It was like yeah. a uniform almost at that Facts. time. Or you would have on your platinum FUBU. And speaking of FUBU, Facts. what they did, you know, was monumental you know how ll was endorsing fubu gave him free airtime while 
on a Gap commercial, and then to see where Damon John is now as an entrepreneur and being on Shark Tank, and to see how it was because of Fubu, you know. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Fubu. From my understanding, they're bringing Fubu back too. Oh, word. So, hey, for those of you that still got your old five Fubu jerseys, go ahead and uh, bring that out and make sure that it has the patch. If you've yeah. seen that episode of Atlanta, you know what I'm talking about. Make sure that it has the FUBU the collection patch. And it just <laughs> goes to show you how fashion really played a part in hip hop to see how now Cross Colors is coming back. The African-American Collegiate Alliance hoodies and sweatsuits are back. And these were fashions that as us being little kids during this time, we can now relive that. And I feel like, like man, I can now rock my cross color hoodies, get my Tims, and feel like, you know, I'm back in the 90s. The only thing missing was a beeper and a payphone. Yeah. Yeah. What about Averex jackets? You remember those? Ooh, Averex briefly. Now, there was this one store in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina called Cadence. It was like upscale urban wear. I will only yeah. go there just to window shop because, of course, I couldn't afford that. Only those that were doing uh, pharmaceutical sales on the streets could afford <laughs> those products. Street pharmacists. Street, street <laughs> pharmacists. Yeah, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Go in them at your local corner. But um, yeah. they could afford that, but not me. So I would just go no, in there I'm and say, say, like, man, one day I want this. But what I really wanted, you remember those race car jackets? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yo, the I wanted one of those NASCAR race car jackets so bad. They used to be like the fashion staple, like in the early 2000s. That oh, and yeah. the throwback jersey. But the throwback jersey had to be Mitchell and Ness. And now the person yep. that I felt kind of sparked off that whole throwback jersey movement, F-A-B-O-L-O-U-S. So talk about fabulous. Oh, yeah, for sure. <clears throat> fabulous, man. <clears throat> to this day, I feel like fabulous... And this is me saying this as a man. I think Fabulous is one of the greatest hip-hop dressers as a male ever. I mean, at that time, man, throwback jerseys, they were so expensive. They're not, I mean, <clears throat> they're still expensive today if you go on Mitchell and Ness. But they're not like they were in 2001. And it wasn't like you could buy a throwback jersey anywhere. You had to either get it from Mitchell and Ness or an authentic jersey store so those joints were running you from 250 dollars on up and at that time i don't know how i don't know where i was getting them from i honestly don't remember but i had a whole bunch of throwback jerseys and what we would do is me and my friends we had a little collection so back in the day when you were a kid you switch clothes with your homeboy like yo i'm gonna wear this jersey monday I'm gonna let you get my jersey, and we used to switch. <laughs> we used to switch jerseys, so we used to model ourselves after Fab. I remember on the Bow Wow basketball video, they had him in one scene, and it was just kind of like he was in the same spot, and he was rapping the same verse, and they would change the jersey on him. And it was, I was like, man, this is this is nuts. Fab is definitely one of the leaders of fashion for the hip-hop culture yeah like, and those throwback jerseys man i mean if you had one you better not wear that to school the first day because you were probably gonna get jacked for it or at a yeah. christmas tournament you was gonna get jacked for it or if you went to your teen night at a local club or skating rink you was gonna get jacked for it so it was yeah. certain outfits and certain shoes that you know you could not wear 
that's just like how Jordans are still in style and how Jordan really was the first brand of athletic shoes that was really embraced by hip hop because I mean, folks were getting jacked for Jordans and, you know, it, it was surprising given how Jordan, while he was of the same age right on when hip hop was going on, he necessarily didn't really fully embrace hip hop, but hip hop fully embraced his right, sneakers. Yeah. And then yeah. later on the baggy shorts, which was made popular by the Fab Five out of Michigan. Yep, absolutely. Right, and as far as hip hop goes, you know, we talked about Texas, you know, with UGK and, um, I thought that once Slim Thug, Mike Jones, and Paul Wall, that Houston was really going to break off nationally. So why did you think that kind of fizzled out once after still tipping and who is Mike Jones and Paul Wall that Houston really didn't take off kind of like New Orleans did nationally? That's a, <clears throat> that's a great question because Houston had so much great music and they were so different paul wall i think what it was if i remember straight <clears throat> paul wall and chameleon i think you know what it was bang i think chameleon there came out and chameleon there to me he could he could rap all day but the stuff that he put out was so commercial what was the song he had i'm gonna show you how to get your shine on the that, that yeah. record he put out, mm. I think people were drawn away from Houston after that because it was like, you know, it's kind of like back in the early 90s, you had Daz Effects and then you had MC Hammer come out. And mm. you're like, wait, well, I don't know about this. It was the same thing with Chameleonaire. I think, I don't want to blame Chameleonaire, but I think Chameleonaire was sort of to blame the reason why Houston took a turn. Because if you look at it, you had Still Tipping, you had Slim Thug, you had Mike Jones. And I think Mike Jones, Mike Jones was so huge, man. And I think that became like a a, a fad too. Like it was kind of like, all right, this is a gimmick now. Like now we want to hear some music. And I think he kind of stopped making music. And it was just kind of a point where they had a <clears throat> a change in music. I think... Paul Wall came out with the girl record where he sampled Old Girl. Mm. And it was kind of like the music wasn't matching the state. So they couldn't identify, you know, what they originally came out with. So I think that's why Houston took a turn. Right. And switch gears real quickly to R&B. Now, around 2001, these guys out of California, they came out and I thought had they stayed together long <laughs> enough, they were going to be like what New Edition is, you know, as far as pop and R&B marketability, B2K. At first, I didn't care for B2K. But when right. Gats to Be came out, that was when I was like, okay, these guys got something here. And they had the look. And Omarion, you know, sing and dance his butt off. Right. <clears throat> yeah, so tell me about um your thoughts on B2K. My thoughts on B2K. So, <clears throat> actually, I actually like B2K. I'm gonna I'm keep it 100. I know it wasn't cool for me to say that at that time. I went to the Scream Tour 2. I went to the Scream Tour 2. And, I, I mean, at this time, Bow Wow was huge, man. 
and B2K was on the bill. I think, yeah, IMX, was, which was immature. They had just got older. And I thought B2K was dope, man, because in actuality, B2K was really, in my opinion, it was Omarion and Rasby singing. And then you had Little Fizz rapping. And then you had, what was the guy's name? Jay Boog. Jay Boog was like the, the ad libs and the announcements or whatever you want to call it. That's how it was broken down. But if you really want to look at it on the singing tip, it was a Marion. That's why, I mean, it made sense for him to go solo because he was really B2K. Um, I thought they were dope, man. And even I'll even go to say as far as, Chris Stokes on production. A lot of people in the early 90s, immature, like Chris Stokes was ahead of his time. Chris Stokes was a lot of that that early production B2K. And yeah, B2K was dope, man. Like they had good production. They had the dance move. They had the looks for the girls. I mean, you can't, I can't knock it. Like they had records like Gots to Be, Why'd You Leave Me on This Christmas, which is still dope to me. Um, <clears throat> Uh-huh was dope. I mean, Girlfriend was dope. Uh, what a Girl Wants, which is my favorite B2K record. Right. I mean, you can't knock them. No, and the funny thing about B2K was Janae Ayiko, she was affiliated with them because she was in a lot of their videos and everything. To see where she is now, how she's blown up is just amazing to see, you know, with her yep. career and everything like that. And I <coughs> just recently did an interview with uh, Prince DeJour. He was the host of Teen Summit and Rap City on BET. Yep. He was telling yep. me that he had a chance to manage Chris Brown before he took off, but he passed. Wow. Yeah, what wow. happened, it was like his daughter knew Chris Brown and she was kept telling him about him. And he was like, nah, nah, nah. And then it wasn't until one day where daughter said, hey, you see this boy right here? That was the one I was trying to tell you a couple years ago to try to manage. And it, it's crazy to see how Chris Brown just took off, you know, with Run It and everything else that came on after that. And then also Trey Songs from Petersburg, like we mentioned in part one with, you know, Petersburg, Tappahannock, Virginia, and how yep. they just really just became superstars. You know what it is, man? I always say, you know, I'm from Virginia, so. Um, I think Virginia is like such an untapped market and we get the best of everything. Like as far as the sounds, we get the East Coast music, we get the down South music because we're in the middle. So we get those influences and kind of form them into our own. So I think that's why Virginia, we're different, man. Like I, I think it's same, same with North Carolina, like North Carolina is in the middle of everything. You're right there at the south, but you're also you, you're close to the north where you can get some of that influence. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and with the Carolinas, you know, Rhapsody still doing her thing. Right. And um, cool thing about Rhapsody for me, a friend of mine that I went to middle school and high school with, he's actually mm. a keyboard player in her band. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> so I thought that was, you know, pretty cool. And then, of course, you know, Little Brother and everything that came out of there and the Baby and J. Cole – and then got to say, rest in peace to Sauce Pat. He was a young rapper out of Greensboro who, you know, 
passed on. So I want to send condolences yeah. to his family and everything. And it just feels like, you know, the Carolinas is finally on, you know, musically and that they're looking at us. It's like, okay, North Carolina is now more than just home of Michael Jordan, NASCAR, Jodeci and everything else is we're starting to become major players really in the music business. Yeah. Shouts to rap. I was actually in one of Rhapsody's early videos called As We Shine. It's on YouTube. It was shot in Greensboro, North Carolina. And this is when she, well, she didn't just start, but it was an early on records. So that's pretty mm-hmm. good. Yeah, yeah, I like that, Rhapsody. Yeah, Rhapsody's cold. Yeah, Rhapsody is, is cold-blooded, man. She's <laughs> definitely tough. Now, how has things changed since we first did our interview with COVID and everything? Are gigs starting to pick back up, or is it still virtual parties for you? Um, Actually, man, it's kind of in the middle. It's They're picking back up, but things are still kind of, like, weird. Um, If people are doing parties, I'm kind of selective of where I do parties, how many people are attending, um, <clears throat> the environment, how close, if we're socially distancing. So it, it, it's still, it's picking up, but it's it's still weird, man, because it, in North Carolina, at least, everything shuts down at 11 o'clock as far as bars. So if you do a party, it's no longer from 10 o'clock to 2 o'clock. Now it's from six o'clock to eleven o'clock or seven o'clock, excuse me, to to eleven o'clock. So things are still weird, and I don't know, man. I I'm trying to trying to cope with the new norm, right? And I think that's going to be like that for a while, at least until you know we get the vaccines and all that stuff. But I think some yeah. people are still going to be a little bit more cautious of going into a nightclub because as you and I both know that been is. in nightclubs, you're packed in like sardines. Yep. Yeah. They have like a capacity. I mean, of course, they, they've been at a capacity, but it's a little, I think they can have only have up to 200 people, which most nightclubs, I mean, you can get up to five, six, seven hundred, seven hundred people. Um, but still, man, even myself, it's, I think, I don't know if you've been watching the news, but it seems like the cases have gone way up this week. Um, and I think they're going to end up shutting everything down again. Like, it's it's no way they're going to keep us in third phase. It, it wouldn't make sense. <clears throat> nah, our, our governor here fit. in New Mexico is cautious over here. You know, she's very like, I'm going to shut it down because if you're a restaurant or bar and you're serving liquor, you got to close at 10. So she's very proactive. But once again, it varies state to state. And give me your opinion real quick on why did you think Bubble Sparks didn't really take off like he should have? Mm, that's that's a good question. You know what? Bubble Sparks had some solid material and the boy could rap, man. Like ugly? Bubba that beat was hard. Ugly? Oh, that, that beat is crazy. Um, and then you had the Deliverance album, which was honestly to me was a better album than the album that had ugly on it production wise with Tim. I just think, man, I don't know. That's a good question. I think at the time beat club records, which was Timberland's record label. Um, they kind of, I feel like maybe they didn't know what to do with them. Like they were doing a good job, but I think that was kind of folding. Tim took a hiatus from producing. Um, 
and I, I don't I don't know what happened with Bubba, man. I mean, Eminem was dominant at that time, so I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, I don't one know of the answer. mysteries that we'll we'll never know. But for me, my favorite Timberland beat was is "World Is So Cold" off of Genuine's debut album. Oh man, the Bachelor album, bro. That's Genuine's best album, bro. The Bachelor album. Because world, if you think about it, so cool. think about oh, it. R and B was totally different once you heard that album, and then also their work with Aaliyah on the One in a Million album. Like you just knew that Missy and Tim had something special, and they were getting their reps in. You know, doing work on the Diary of a Mad Bad album with Jodeci, and then Sister came out with their album, and then Missy and Tim focused more so on production and i just found it amazing how missy was just content to just being the background before i believe it was michael bivens was telling like nah you got star power and then that led to her cameo on the stilo was 702 and then of yeah. course on the gina thompson remix to the things you do which still gets yeah. heavy play on 90s parties yep i still play that record man you know what my favorite i got so i'm a huge tim fan um Actually, we got the same last name, Mosley, and from Virginia. But uh, my favorite Tim record, I think that he produced, maybe Cheers to You by Player or Beat Me 911. I like the double beats, the ones where he, like, slow it down, but he's going fast. The World is So Cold, definitely in my top five. Tim has so many records that I'm just like, nah, this is my favorite. This is my favorite. But man, that beat me 911 and cheers to you. Mm. Man, yeah, but it was crazy if you look at the documentary Fade to Black. Um it was the scene where Jay-Z and Timberland was in the studio and right. him was playing them beats. One of the beats actually ended up becoming potion for Ludacris. And then he yep. played Jay-Z the beat. It was like maybe it was a reference or demo beat for Dirt Off His Shoulder. And you saw how Jay-Z's face just lit up like he gave him that stank face and was like, oh, this yep. it right here. Yeah. He was, you know, already you know, had the hook. Already was humming it out. Yep. Another, another thing about the documentary, he played another beat, which was a Brandy record. That was on her aphrodisiac album. If you go back and listen to that album, the beat that he played is like doo -doo 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 that is a brandy record. It became a brandy. Oh man. So what speaking of the ladies, what was your thoughts on the female cipher in the BT Hip Hop Awards this year with with Tiana Taylor, Erica Badu, Brandy, her uh am I anybody else that I'm missing in that cipher? Uh did you say Tiana Taylor? Tiana Taylor, not yeah, Tiana Taylor, Brandy, her, her uh, Erica Badu. Erica Badu, yeah. That's all I remember. That's it. Um, that was dope. Super dope. And they did a really good job recreating I Want to Be Down video. Mm, That's and, all I can say. It was super dope. Right. And speaking of Brandy, your thoughts on the versus battle. And I believe DJ Mars was doing the versus battle DJ. And can you talk about the impact of DJ Mars and the Super Friends? Man, shouts to Mars, man. Actually, Mars sent me, let's see if I got it right here. Mars sent me this book. Go get this book if you don't know much about mixtapes, the art behind the tape. Definitely some good information in here. Shouts to Mars for sending me this. And 
I mean, DJ Morris, man, he's he's done a lot of things. He's like a DJ Nabs almost. Like they're pretty much neck for neck um, as far as Atlanta culture and Atlanta DJs. I mean, that dude is really knowledgeable. And the fact that he's DJing a versus with two legendary R&B artists is, is crazy. I mean, what, let me ask you a question. What do you think of, have you taken time to listen to the B7 album? Yeah, album. yeah, I listened to the B7 album. I I thought it, it was dope. You know, Brandy has always been a favorite vocalist of mine, and it just shows her evolution, you know, as a singer and just how she's really biting the apple twice, as you know, because Moesha is now streaming on Netflix, so a whole new generation gets to see what we, as 90s kids, known for decades about Brandy and then Monica on the Versus Battle. I think Monica, a lot of people are like, oh, wow, her catalog is that deep? Because her first album, Fire. The Miss Fang album, yeah. Fire. Absolutely. Yeah, but it was crazy to see how vocally Monica was mature at 14, 15 years old. Yeah, and the songs that she was singing at that age were crazy. Like, now, look, I didn't know she was that young. Mm, but as we know, there was a story that Dallas Austin had told on DJ Vlad. It was before they were performing The Boy's Mind at the MTV Video Music Awards. I guess Brandy and Monica had a little tiff, and Monica had to show Brandy that she was <laughs> from the A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She <laughs> she channeled her inner pastor, Troy. Yeah, absolutely. Stating that absolutely. we don't play oh. GA. Now with uh, Atlanta, the snap era. What was your take on the oh, snap man. era? Me, I didn't really care for it. I thought it was corny. You know, everybody was singing Laffy Taffy at the club, lean with it, rock with it, all that. Like, but the but that whole era kind of sort of had had its time and made an impact on rap, whether you want to talk about it or not. Um, I thought that era, like, okay, that was my tenth grade to senior year so that era was so important like i i'm not even gonna front i hated the snap like when i heard laffy taffy the girl i was dating at the time loved that record so every time i ride with her in the car she was playing that record i to this day i really don't care for laffy taffy i get it but I can't front and sit here and like I wasn't snapping in the club. I didn't have the long white tees on. I didn't have the goofy glasses and all the you know colorful things going on. I definitely went through that era. So snap music was, you know, definitely important. And and honestly, looking at music now, how bad like I'm not gonna say bad music is, but how they mumble now. And back then, I thought music was terrible. I'm like, yo, it can't get worse than this. Right. I can actually appreciate that music now. Right. And T-Pain came out right around the same time. And at first, I was like, okay, I'm sprung. Nice little one hit. But to see how T-Pain, T-Pain, to me, he's like, rest in peace, Nate Dog. where if you put T-Pain on your record, it's going to be a smash because T-Pain, I think he was able to take the auto-tune, blend it, make it mesh, but his songwriting is no joke either. And everybody I saw agree. vocally when he wanted the Mass Singer season one that T-Pain is an actual vocalist. Yeah, and he can sing, like you said, he can sing without auto-tune. 
he just uses it as seasoning. So yeah, T Pain is is definitely dope, man. Definitely dope. Um, yeah, that's all I can say about T Pain. Yeah. He's dope. Yeah, T T Pain is dope, and it's just great to see the evolution of music over the years and how you know things are coming back around full circle. And your take, really quick, on Big Sean. Big Sean, you know what? Um, Big Sean is is dope. I like Big Sean from day one. From um, he had a mixtape, and it had a song called "What You Doing." I'll never forget this. My um, man, Nick D, has sent me this record out in Greensboro, who was on the radio. And he sent me the record, and he was like, yo, his manager sent this to me. Tell me what you think. Da, da, da. I said the record, I was like, yo, this is dope. Big Sean is dope. And what really what won me over is meeting him and talking with him. And he was super humble, man. Super humble guy, super nice guy. And that just made me pay more attention to him. And I always thought Big Sean was dope, like super dope. I, l- I always liked his tone. Dude can rap. Yeah, that Detroit 2 album is fire. And then a lot of names I've been hearing a lot is been uh, Griselda and uh, Benny the Butcher out of Buffalo. And okay. they, they've been getting, you know, a lot of buzz. You know, Benny the Butcher just released his album and very highly rated. And then Buster's ELE 2 album, that golden era boom bat record and then a lot of people were saying how Busta was kind of talking about things that we're kind of seeing now when he did ELE when disaster strikes it ain't safe no more and everybody should just give Busta his flowers if you have not done so already absolutely Busta has been around since 1991 with Leelis yeah I mean like it's not too many rappers with the exception of LL Cool J a lot of people talk about Jay-Z. <clears throat> and I think Jay-Z was around 1990. So him and Buster were around the same same era. I mean, Buster has been around and he always comes back. Like, even if he goes away for years, he comes back on someone's track, makes an appearance. I mean, when he made Look At Me Now, that was like he reintroduced himself to a younger crowd. And I mean, Buster is just a talented man. He's to me, he's the male version of Missy. Yeah, and if you um, have not seen or heard already, um, he did an interview with Nori and DJ EFN, Drink Champs. That joint's four hours long, but it was very insightful because you know Nori and Buster was on Violator, so it was a very well insightful interview and. To me, another good track off that EL2 album was, I believe it was Master Ford, I believe it was the name of the track, with uh, Rick Ross. And yep. cause tell me tell me a little bit about, before we get out of here, about the impact of Rosé and how it's because of Rosé, everybody knows about Wingstop and the Lemon Pepper Wings. Oh, man. When I first heard, so I heard um, <clears throat> Rosé, it was this streamer uh, huh? record called I heard him before the hunt. He was on Rose. the called um I told y'all it was on All About the Benjamins with Trina. All about the yes. He was on that record. That was the first song I heard with Rick Ross. I forgot he was on that record. Totally. Yep. That's the first record I had the actual vinyl. And then he came back. This is probably my sophomore year again, Port of Miami. 
And I remember hearing that, and I was like, the hustling record was so big, man. I had never heard anything like that where they were like taking samples, slowing them down, playing organs over them. I mean, at that time, trap music was becoming pretty big because you had Jeezy Thug Motivation. I think that came out in 05, and then Port of Miami came 06, 07. Yeah, probably 06. Mm. And the production was different. They embraced Miami because, like, yeah, Miami was already out. Like, we had Luke, but it was like a dry spell where you didn't hear much from Miami. And then you had the birth of Cool and Dre, uh, the producers, um, who went on to do other things as well with Christina Ag- Christina uh, Million, Jay Z, and so many other things. So, Rose is another i i look at rose there's rappers and then there's mcs to me rose is an mc like he's a true talent like if you look at the few rappers that are really that can actually rap and talk about what's going on and be relevant rose is one of those artists that can come back four years from now make an album and people pay attention to it. Right. And we mentioned earlier about how Jay-Z and Buster was out at the same time. We got to mention this guy who gave Jay-Z his start along with Bit Daddy Kane when Bit Daddy Kane would bring Jay-Z on the road with him and have him kick freestyles in between sets. Uh, mm-hmm. Jazzo. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The originator. So Jazzo, everybody listen to Jazzo and you see where Jay-Z comes from. Look at the Originators video. Jay-Z was in yeah. that. And then, of course, yeah. as we know, Reasonable Doubt production, the bulk of it was done by Greensboro, NC native, Mr. Ski, Ski Beats. Beats. Ski Beats. Also man. known as Will Ski. <laughs> mm-hmm, from Original Flavor and Busy Boys. And it was yeah. just crazy to see, you know, Ski and how he was able to do production for Jay-Z and Camp Low and to know that he's from the 336 and how rich in hip-hop history the triad area you know has is it's, it's just yeah. amazing man absolutely it, it definitely is man so much talent in the Carolinas and just people man like you just never know it, just because you're somewhere you could be in a boondocks it doesn't determine your latitude man nope you, you, have, you have you have no limits, man. And uh, do you have any shout-outs you want to give before we wrap up this interview, bro, and also plug social? Uh, yeah, I just want to shout you out for actually reaching back out to do another interview and just talking about hip-hop and music. Um, shout-out to everybody listening to this when you listen to it. And my social media is at just, that's J is in jump, U-S-T, B is in boy, man no dj so it says just be man no dj you can also find me on the without no dj podcast if you want to if you're interested in listening to a podcast about dj and the history um that's a pretty legendary and you know just just a lot of learning on the podcast so if you want to check that out it's without no dj podcast all right, definitely check him out on all those platforms. You can catch this interview on all streaming platforms. Just search Beyond the Album Cover. And the video version is available on my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash J85, lowercase J, numbers 85. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, the incredible, my good brother from another mother, B-Man. B-Man, thank you for coming back on and rapping with me, man. 
Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. No 